in this series that I've titled Unstoppable. We're looking at the book of Acts, portion by portion, chapter by chapter. Uh, What we've seen so far is the ascension of Jesus. Uh, We've seen the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the disciples uh, who are learning to follow Him. We've seen the church begin its growth and its expansion. We've seen its favor in the world. We've seen people come to faith. We've seen the first martyr of the Christian church in Stephen. We've seen incredible generosity uh, given uh, by the church. Uh, We've seen the scattering because of a persecution that broke out. We've seen uh, the martyrdom of the first apostle in the church. We've seen a lot. And it leads us to chapter 13. And in chapter 13 that we're in this morning, what we see is a quantum shift in the church's expansion in the world. Up through chapter 12, as the church has expanded and moved through the world, it's been propelled by persecution. Uh, Persecution broke out as they scattered, they talked about Jesus, they told his story, and churches and communities of believers started to pop up around the known world where people scattered. It seems as though it's almost been haphazard, the the starting of churches. Uh, Now, starting in chapter 13, the church goes on the offensive, and there, it makes a deliberate plan to send out people that God has called and gifted for the work to plant churches, primarily through two men at the beginning, Barnabas and Saul, who would later become known as Paul the Apostle. And because of this change, the church is purposeful in its planting of churches And it goes further than what probably they ever imagined. When it began, the church was a localized entity of a faith that came out of a Jewish, the Jewish faith. It was a separate own sect uh, that came out of Judaism that very few people really grabbed onto. It began to grow, but it was all localized. Like I said, through persecution, it starts to expand. And this is the point in church history, this is the point in biblical history, where they say this is what God is about, sending people purposefully into other parts of the world, to other people groups, Jew and non-Jew, to talk about Christ and this kingdom that he's establishing in this world and beyond. And so in chapter 13, we see this shift. And uh, so I want to open there. If you have a Bible, have access to one, if you go to Acts chapter 13, the first three verses read like this. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, a Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were doing two things, worshiping the Lord and fasting, The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they, those leaders, uh, had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on Saul and Barnabas on them and sent them off. In this church in Antioch, it lists five main leaders, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Menean, Lucius, and Saul. 
and we drop into the, one of their leadership meetings, which they are worshiping and fasting. And it tells us that they were prophets and teachers. Five men worthy of reference, serving as prophets and teachers, worshiping and fasting. First thing I want us to understand is when it says that they were prophets and teachers, a prophet is someone who tells the truth of the word of God necessary for the moment at hand. It doesn't necessarily mean one who foretells the future. It can, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. It means those who take the word of God and speak its truth for the moment and need at hand. Prophets. And teachers, those who rightly divide, discern, and teach Scripture and doctrine. So you have these two gifts, gifts of the Spirit, working in the leadership of this church in Antioch in these five guys. Barnabas, we first heard about him back in Acts chapter 4. He was, his real name was Joseph. Barnabas was his nickname. It means son of encouragement. He was a great encourager. And he had he was a man of means. He sold some property in a distant land and gave the money to the church when it was first beginning so the church could keep going. That's Barnabas. He later sought Saul out and called Saul into partnership and ministry with him. That's Barnabas. Then there was Simeon called Niger. That word Niger literally means black. And he was probably a black African man and very much likely the same Simon who carried the cross of Christ on the place to, uh, going up to the skull, uh, the place of the skull to be crucified. Same guy. I don't have time to go into the details of how we know that, but just trust me. Uh, Menaean, who grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod, Herod the Tetrarch was the Herod that was in charge of the beheading of John the Baptist and who presided over one of the trials of Jesus. And somehow Menaean and, and this Herod were friends growing up and their lives just took two very different paths. And then there was Lucius, who was a man who was probably scattered to Antioch because of the martyrdom of the first church's uh, martyr, Stephen, probably made his way to Antioch and helped start this church that, that they're in right now. And then there was Saul. Saul was his Jewish name. His Greek name is Paul, who would become Paul the, uh, the apostle, and probably, the, well, certainly the greatest church planter the world's ever known, and probably the second greatest teacher and preacher next to Jesus. And so it's these five guys acting out their spiritual gifts of prophet and teacher while they're worshiping and fasting. In other words, they're seeking God's direction. And because they seek God's direction, God responds. And apparently, though we're not told, we can guess what direction they were seeking from God. Because God said, set apart for these two the work I have called them and send them off in this ministry work. Apparently, what they were praying for and fasting for and seeking God about is God's direction for the expansion of His church in the world. Otherwise, why would God have directed them that way? God responds to the prayers we pray. God's response was, set these two aside for the work I have for them to plant churches. Apparently, what these five were praying for, God, what is your next step for us in the expansion of your kingdom in the world? We'll give you a yes on the front end. We'll say, yes, we are yours. All you have to do is direct the work of our hands and the tenor of our lives and our resources. We will already agree to investing it and however you direct. And so God says, thank you. I'm going to direct these two to go. Because they sought God's direction for expanding the kingdom, God answered their prayer in that very way. Here's the first thing I want us to understand about prayer. 
If you're going to pray about something, you must be willing to be a part of God's answer. Don't pray about something that you're not willing to be a part of the answer somehow. In other words, you, you don't ever pray, God, will you please make someone else? That's not a biblical prayer. You want to pray about something, say, God, yes, you have to be the one to intervene. I'm willing to be and do whatever it is you want for me to be and do, and they answer this prayer. In other words, when Jesus was, was in his public ministry, he gathered disciples around him, and he said, I want you to look. The fields are ripe for harvest. Pray for workers for those fields. And immediately after that, he sent them out as the workers in that field. In other words, don't pray for something you're not willing to be a part of the, his answer to. Does that make sense? They were praying, God, what's your next step in the expansion of your kingdom in this world? He said, you are. And they said, okay. You know, we, we've been, I've been praying a lot for God's next person to lead our youth ministry. And God said, great, you are. <laughs> Jeff and I have understood. We're praying about this. But we're willing to be part of God's answer to it. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's just the way he works. And so, so the first lesson we see right up front here, if you're going to pray about something, you have to be willing to be part of God's answer to it. The second thing is this. Prayer is not only to request that God do something. Prayer is to align our heart and life with his kingdom. There certainly is, biblically, a precedent for making your request known to God because he cares about us and asking his hand to intervene. Absolutely. But the greater purpose of prayer is to align our heart and our life with that kingdom that we're wanting to see in the world. And so these five leaders in the Antiochian church were aligning their lives and their heart with the kingdom of God. In other words, they're saying, God, whatever it is you want, we want your kingdom above ours. So we're aligning our life, we're aligning our hearts with your kingdom. Do what you can, do what you want. Please intervene. We're willing to be a part of your answer. And God said, that's the kind of prayer I can answer, I can respond to. And he calls two of them out. And I want you to notice something. In verse 3, when the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work I have for them, for what I've called them to. There were five key leaders in this church, and now they were going to lose two of their five. Paul and Barnabas were, were, were some of the, they were the impetus to the church's expansion of the world. They were the, in essence, they were the kingpins. And now God says, I want you to take your two best and let them go. I guarantee you, I've been around churches a long time. I guarantee you that in most churches, the response of the church is this. What? Are, no. They're like leading our youth pastor, and it's our youth pastor and our worship pastor. We can't let them go. Why would we let our senior pastor go do something else? They're integral to what God's doing here. That's how most churches respond. We, we first look at, well, what's that going to cost me? And if I view its cost of me as more than what the, than the value, I'm not going to give it up, right? And, and so when God says, what I love about this church in Antioch, they didn't debate it. They didn't complain about it. They didn't form a committee about it. They didn't talk about it. They didn't worry about the hit it would be on their church and their ministry. They confirmed God's call and they let him go. 
that from a human perspective, it would be much like this. If there were a highly, highly successful company that was growing faster than what they could control its growth, that the revenue was just pouring in, and all of a sudden the CEO comes and says, you know what? I know I've been responsible for this company's success. I'm going to go start a, a new company. Good luck. That's not a good business strategy in America, right? But God doesn't do stuff according to our strategy. He does stuff differently. And so this is why this church commits to planting churches. This is the biblical standard of what a church should do. This, this is why we're committed to building God's kingdom, not our kingdom. Because this is what we see in Scripture. There's a lot of things churches could do. This is what we will do. A lot of what churches could do aren't even in the Bible. A lot of what churches do do isn't even in the Bible. This is. So this is what we will do. And we will not waver from it. And we will not get sidetracked by anything else. This is God's plan. This is what he does. And this is what we do. This is why we are so ready to let people go and do other work to plant churches. Oh, it's interesting. I've talked about this before. Uh, you know the difference between a mule and a donkey? I've, I've told you this before, right? Yeah. A, 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 a mule reproduces mules. What's a donkey reproduce? Nothing. They can't reproduce. The reason is a donkey is a human invention between a horse and a mule. I got it backwards. A mule is, yeah. A mule is, a, they don't reproduce. Donkeys do. Because a donkey is God's invention. And whatever God creates, reproduces. Whatever God doesn't create, doesn't reproduce. So some churches are mules. They work hard and carry a lot of work, but they don't reproduce. Because they're a man's invention. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'd rather be a donkey than a mule. Because it's God's invention that reproduces. This is the biblical standard. God's kingdom does not advance without people somewhere making a costly, often painful investment. J.C. Ryle said this, it costs something to be a Christian. Let that never be forgotten. To be a nominal Christian and simply go to church is cheap and easy. But to hear God's voice to follow Christ and confess Christ requires much self-denial. This is the standard. This was the church in Acts, and it must be our church. Disciples must be willing to sacrifice greatly to share the good news. Kingdom work is not a selfish work. It requires the giving of resources, the giving of time, the giving of energy, the giving of money, the giving of people to plant new churches. You've heard me talk about Excel Leadership Network that I'm a part of. I was part of the ones that helped start that thing. And Excel Leadership Network is a network focused on planting churches. Acts 13, this first few verses, is our core foundation verse. That our goal in this world is to spot high-level leaders that God has called and set apart for church planting 
to call them, to confirm that call, to support them, to send them, to fund them, to coach them, to mentor them, to care for them. According to God's plan to establish His kingdom in this world through planting churches, this is what we do. Acts 13 is our model. And today after this service, I'm leaving to fly to Phoenix. Jeff's going with me. We're taking a bunch of other church planters and people called to church planting with us. And you're paying for it all. Thank you. Because this is what we do. And we'll be in Phoenix till Tuesday. Coaching and training and calling out church planters for the work God has set them aside to do. And in December, we're gathering a lot of church planters from around this valley, and we're treating them to an evening, which we do occasionally, uh, to fellowship, to pray with each other, to care for each other, to train, to coach. And guess what? You're paying for that too. Thank you, because this is what the church does. I say all the time, you don't give to Flipside, you give through Flipside. And what you're giving through Flipside is to church planning all around the world. This is what the church does. And I love the fact that Paul spent years learning and serving before he ever led. This is a principle we have to learn and that we practice. Here's, Here's how I say it. If serving is beneath you, leading is beyond you. We got to get this right. If serving is beneath you, leading is beyond you. I try not to let anybody lead in this church that hasn't that doesn't have a track record of serving first. And please understand this: Paul spent a couple decades learning and serving in anonymity, in 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 loneliness, in solitude before he ever led. The Bible says, "Don't be too quick." To lead nor to put people in leadership. You serve first. If serving is beneath you, leading is beyond you. Men, hear me on this. You husbands, listen to me. We don't earn the right to lead our wives until we first serve our wives. We We don't gain the right to lead our homes until we first are the lead server in our homes. We earn the right to lead our children by our loving sacrifice and service of them. And if that type of service is beneath you, leading as a man is beyond you. This is the biblical standard. I was reading over this this week and I... I thought for a moment, I thought, I wonder who the next church planter is. And maybe they're in our church. I wonder. You want to know one reason why our youth ministry is so important? Because there's church planters in it. And they don't know it yet. I, I, I thought, I wonder who's, who the next one that's wise enough and strong enough to plant a church is. Because it ain't for the weak and dumb. I thought, I wonder who God is calling and setting apart for a special work that they don't even have a clue to yet. 
I thought, I wonder who the next Barnabas is. The next one, man or woman, who is just this encourager that sees something in somebody else and calls it up out of them and just is the support around them and the, and the one who gives generously to the to expansion of God's kingdom. I wonder who the next Barnabas is. I thought, I wonder who the next Paul is. The one who applies everything that God's done in their life to the work of expanding the kingdom of God through church planning, who's going to go. And I wonder which one of you those are. I wonder which one is in our youth group right now. And I thought, I want God to answer that prayer. And so we better pray. And as we pray, we better be the ones who are willing to be a part of the answer. This is what I pray for every single morning. Every morning. And I want to invite you into my prayer and agree with me as a church that this is what we will do. Father, I thank you that this is what your people do, that this is what your church does. Thank you that this is the call that you placed on us. In spite of ourselves, that you have, that, that you have allowed us to be fools for you and weak for you so you could show your strength and your wisdom through us. That you were willing to work through our failure so you, so you could show the world the magnificence of your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace. Father, we, we want to be a part of the expansion of your kingdom in this world. We, we so desperately want to be a part of, of, of planting churches in this world, those churches that will reproduce Christ followers and reproduce other churches who in turn will do it generation after generation after generation. This is our heart. This is our desire. This is what we see in Scripture. This is what we know is biblical. This is what we want you to do in us. And so we're willing to say, Father, we will say yes on the front end, and we are willing to be a part of your answer to the prayer of the establishment of your kingdom to the planting of churches in this world. So do it with us. Holy Spirit, I know that there are Barnabases here that you're calling to the forefront. I know that there are Pauls here that you're calling out from amongst us. I know that there are young ones in our children's ministry and our youth ministry that you're calling. I know there's old ones who are thinking they're at the tail end of your call in their life and they're not all, they're just beginning. And so Holy Spirit, in the powerful name of Jesus, I ask you to speak to us that you would call us that you would allow us the privilege of living and being called to that which is so far beyond our own pleasure and our own desires and our own comfort and our own dreams and our own agendas that is called into your kingdom. God, we so desperately just want to be a church that's investing in your kingdom expansion in this world by planting other churches. I believe that's your heart. I know that's your word. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to do that. I pray that we do it well. Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. So that was the first three verses. Let me get to four and five. 
the two of them, Barnabas and Saul, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they, uh, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Let me just point out a couple things. They were sent on their way by whom? By the Holy Spirit. They were called by God. They were not elected by the church. They were called by God. It's not that they were seeking some title or job. Here's the rule. If, if God doesn't call you, don't go. But if God does call you, don't stay. Does that make sense? Paul and Barnabas go to Cyprus and then to Paphos, and then you can read about it in your Bible. There's a crazy interaction between those two and this sorcerer who opposed the gospel, who opposed the work of God, who was drawing people away from God. They struck him blind, and because they struck him blind, everybody's like, holy moly, these guys are the real deal, and everybody believed. It's just a crazy story you can read about it on your own. But then something happened. I want you to watch what happened. Verses 13 and 14. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. This is John Mark. Okay, so this young man named John Mark. He left them on their journey to go return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they entered the synagogue and sat down. Now, there's not much noted here about the event that caused John Mark to leave Paul and Barnabas and go back to Jerusalem. Something happened. And he's like, I don't want to hang with you guys anymore. I don't want to continue with the journey. I want to go home. We don't know what it was until later, like chapter 15 and on, like we, we start to get a feel for what really happened. But it was something big that made him leave Paul and Barnabas. He goes back home. He's a young man. He goes back home. And, and, and Paul and Barnabas had two very different reactions to this. Paul is old school. Paul's like, are you freaking kidding me, you dang millennial, you candy cane, soft little boy? You, got, you need a mental health day? Are you kidding? You suck it up. Like, it's tough. Life is tough. Who told you it's going to be easy? What is your problem? You, you know how that goes, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, Paul is like, this, you're, <laughs> and, and, and Barnabas has a very different reaction. Barnabas, it, it, it was, his nickname was what? An encourager. And so Barnabas' reaction to young John, John Mark was like, Paul, back off. Sometimes people need a nap. Sometimes they need to hold puppies and be told it's going to be Okay. Just let him work his process. Let him be in a safe place. It's okay if he goes home. Two very different reactions. We don't get that from this verse, but this is what's going on. We, we know about it from other parts of Scripture. And so what happens, who of those two is right? Paul or Barnabas? Depends on how old you are. <laughs> my generation, like, suck it up, buttercup. Are you freaking kidding me? Want to go back home? But other people understand. And, and so they were both right. And, and, and they'll work it out later. Believe me, they work it out later. They're fine. But, but right now it was so tense. It got so bad that Paul and Barnabas eventually split ways. Like, they couldn't be around each other anymore. That's how big this thing was. But I want you to notice something. 
John Mark leaves. Paul and Barnabas obviously have this huge thing between them, but they keep the main thing the main thing. And they don't let their own personal offense stop their work for the kingdom. Look at what the Bible says. From Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch on the Sabbath. They, and this is after John Mark left. That was a big blowout. They went to the synagogue and sat down after the reading of the, from the law and the prophets. The leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, now they're still together. Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites, you and your Gentile, uh, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. So here's what happened. They have this huge blow up. John Mark leaves. Paul and Barnabas are at odds with each other. And the next thing they do is what? The work they're called to do together. Paul and Barnabas don't get sidetracked. And they don't let being offended by the other make them offensive. And they don't let the disagreement that they have, which is very real and very big, drive a wedge between them. They keep the main thing the main thing. Understand this. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be setbacks in ministry. There's going to be setbacks in life. People are going to leave us. People are going to turn away from us. People are going to reject us. People are going to walk out on us. And when that happens, the disciple of Christ cannot get so discouraged that they quit. Staying in it in those situations is not easy. But the disciples got to stay with it and stay at it. I love the fact that they didn't let their disagreement make them disagreeable. And I love the fact that they didn't stay offended by the other's offense. We got a lot to learn, yeah? They would let later reconcile and join ministry together because they were committed to the kingdom, not to their own agenda and their own offense. And then Paul goes on this big, long teaching from verses 15 through 37 and gives this huge history lesson and biblical lesson setting up the good news of Jesus. And in verses 38 and 39, he says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Paul keeps Jesus the main thing. Salvation through Jesus, faith alone in the work of Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Whatever Paul and Barnabas would disagree on, they would agree on this, that Jesus is the main thing. And whatever else anyone needed in their life that Paul was talking to, they knew, he knew that their greatest need was a relationship with Christ. And Paul knew that people try to get right with God by religious ways, and he knows that those religious ways of being right with God are never going to work. In other words, he knew this, that we have got to understand, that religion is a two-letter word spelled D-O. Religion is a two-letter word spelled do. And what that looks like is if I do the right things and don't do the wrong things, and if I do enough good things, God will be pleased with me. And even if I don't know if I 
if I do all of the good I should do, as long as I do more than you do, I'm better than you. And so God will be more pleased with me than he is with you because of what I do. You follow me? That's religion. And it doesn't work. That's the law. And it doesn't save. And some people, are even in this place, are trying to follow God by what they do. And you cannot do enough. Christianity is a four-letter word spelled D-O-N-E. Done. It's a relationship based on what Jesus has done through his life, has done on the cross, has done in his resurrection. He has done all the work. And all one must do is believe in what Jesus has already done and not try to do anything. And because we have faith in what Jesus has done, the relationship with God is made right. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is which of those do we live by? What we do or based on what Jesus has done? The sad thing is many who believe in what Jesus has done still live according to what they do. That they believe in what Jesus has done for salvation, but they believe still that God's response to their life is based on what they do. And though set free from sin and salvation by faith, they still live under law. And so what we have to wrestle with and come to terms with is to live under the grace and mercy of God based on what Jesus has done in spite of what we still do. And live in this relationship that is held together and affirmed and blessed based on what has already been done. And this is Paul's message. He says, you're missing something that you're seeking for in the law, that the law you were never able to obtain. It's a relationship with Christ. Let me just wrap this up. It's 52 verses long. There's no way I'm going to go through the whole thing. Let me just jump to verse 49. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders inciting the God-fearing women of high standing and leading men of the city. Now, when it says God-fearing women, it doesn't mean Jesus followers. It means Jewish prominent women and leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the Paul and Barnabas, they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. God-fearing women of high standing and leading men. Religious ladies with social clout and the leading men of the area. Be careful of those who care much about social influence and play at religion. Be careful. The Bible says they shook the dust off their feet as a witness to them. What that means, basically, they washed their hands of them. They said, we're done with you. We've told you about Jesus. We've laid it out. We made it plain. We gave you opportunities. All you've done is is harass and persecute and reject him. And so we're done with you. I love the fact that they weren't codependent that they didn't feel like they were the saviors of the people, that they didn't have a Messiah complex, they did what God asked them to do, people rejected it, and they moved on. Now it's between them and God. It's a pretty healthy way to live. Yeah. 
And this whole chapter wraps up. I want you to notice this, this one. The, the disciples were filled with joy. They had been harassed. They'd been kicked out. They'd been chased out of town. And they were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Again, the, reje- the disciples were rejected. Again, they were abused. Again, they were harassed. And they were filled with bitterness. They were filled with discouragement. They posted online how, about how bad everybody was. They rallied their friends around them to protest. What did they do? They were filled with what? With joy and the Holy Spirit. It seems to me every time I read the book, of, not every time, but nearly every time if you look at it, every time people are filled with the Holy Spirit, it's come after persecution. And times of persecution only, meant, only served to fill them with joy. In the midst of mistreatment, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and joy. When, when, the, when the Bible uses that Greek word, filled, it means there's no more room for. They can't be any more full. And I'm sorry, and I don't want this to be, like, disrespectful at all, but, you know, with the whole Matthew Perry's passing, um, I loved watching Friends, you know, back in the day, and with his past, the only thing I could hear is, is Chandler's voice. Can I be any more full? <laughs> Just like, like so, like completely full. Can I be any more full? I mean, with a faith answer like that, it's unstoppable. doesn't matter what you do to me. It's unstop- I'm unstoppable. Reject me. I'm still unstoppable. You lose. Walk out of me. I'm still unstoppable. You lose. Harass me. I'm still unstoppable. You lose. This was the disciples. Imagine what they would have forfeited had they let a little persecution stop them. Imagine what would have been forfeited had they let bitterness stop them. Imagine what they would have forfeited had they let hardship stop them. Imagine what they would have forfeited had they let rejection stop them. Now imagine what we forfeited because the same things. This is our standard. And I'm telling you, disciples, stay after it. Religious people quit. Disciples don't quit. Religious people do. Disciples might get discouraged, but we don't stay discouraged. And so I have to ask this question of myself. You need to ask it of you. What does it take to stop you? What does it take to make you discouraged? What does it take to make you mean? What does it take to make you bitter? What does it take to make you stop? Disciples might get to all those places, but we don't stay there. We get refocused. We freaking stay after it. Because this kingdom is unstoppable. If you're a disciple, you have a huddle to reach. Get refocused and freaking stay after it. We are a church that's trying to do what we see in Scripture, and we have a community and a world to reach. So we'll stay focused and stay after it. And if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, You need to understand that everything has been done so you can. Don't miss out 
on life. Not your best life, not a better life, on life itself. Jesus said, I am the life. Don't miss out on it. Won't you pray with me? Father, thank you. You have called us to a great endeavor. You have, you have called us and set us apart for kingdom stuff. And I thank you for the depth and the magnitude and the magnificence of that call. I pray we not take it lightly. I pray we not get sidetracked. I pray we not get discouraged. I pray we not allow bitterness and, 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 and frustration and hurt to, to make us walk back. I pray we press in and press on. If you have a relationship with Jesus, I, I encourage you in this moment. Just to say, God, I'm all in. Just admit it. Tell him, God, I'm sorry. I've, I've gotten sidetracked by my own agenda, by my own pleasure, by my own schedule, my own wants, my own desire, my own stuff. Like I, I've been sidetracked by my own kingdom so much. And in humility, I lay all that stuff down. Your kingdom first. Whatever role you want me to play in that, I, I agreed. I agree to play it. Just to understand, if that's your prayer, he's going, to, he's going to give you something. Just get ready if you pray that prayer to say yes. Some of you have, have, have been on the outskirts of this for, for far too long. Some of you have been trying to do, do, do for far too long. And today is your day to accept what has already been done. And live your life in the freedom that's been offered you. And I'd encourage you in this moment say, Father, I accept what Jesus has done for me on the cross. And I submit my life, Jesus, to you and your leadership. I choose to serve you and your kingdom. And I trust that what you've done is enough. I choose to quit striving to do in order to please you. I thank you that you are already pleased by my faith and what's been done. I give myself to you. Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy of opening up your word. Thank you for the life that it gives us as we open it up and discuss it and think about it and let it penetrate our hearts and our minds and our spirits and our souls. Thank you. You are a good God. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the people of this church. I thank you that you've called us to a unique work, to your work. I thank you for helping us not get sidetracked by building our kingdom. I thank you for the people of this church who are sacrificial and generous and, and, and who, who live lives of self-denial for your kingdom's sake. I thank you. It is a special work. It's a special church. It is a special people. I thank you for this opportunity. 
continue to do what it is you desire to do in the building of your kingdom in this world, and we'll gladly play our part. Jesus, it's in your name. I pray these things. Amen. Listen, one of the things I didn't hit on in chapter 13 is that God didn't call a person. He called a people. He called Paul and Barnabas together. God didn't call Lone Rangers. He calls teams. He calls people together to serve together. And so if you made some decision this morning, you're not intended. It's not intended for you to walk through that alone. It's always in relationship. And so I think you need to let me know, let us, let Jeff know, let, let Heather know, let Dave who was up here know, stop at the start here booth, write it on a card, drop us an email, something, so that we can partner with you as you walk in faith. It's got to be done in community. you got to tell somebody. You understand that? You understand that? Yeah? Listen, I love you. I love what God's word with you. Next week is chapter 14. So go back and reread 13 and start reading 14. And we'll unpack that one together next week. You got it? One more thing. Y'all got people in your huddle that don't go to church somewhere. Right? And freaking get after it. Let's sing together.